The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right. Well, if you have your little packets that are there on the stand when you came in, um, you can see we're going to be covering a little bit of Roman history. We've been going through up to this point. Well, we, we've really, over the last six years, gone through pretty much the entire Old Testament. And uh, we have closed out the Old Testament um, a few weeks ago, 13 actually, I think, if, I, if my math is right. Um, maybe 14 actually, now that I think about it. Maybe even more than that. I don't know how long it's been. It's been a long time. We closed out the Old Testament and we've been going through intertestamental history. That is the period of time between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. There's a gap in history there that is not really covered in our Bibles. And so we are kind of going through and setting up what has been happening in uh, the life of Palestine in a Palestinian area, that, that is the area of Israel, the Promised Land, uh, throughout that time period so that when we get into the New Testament, some of the things that Jesus goes through, some of the things the disciples, the apostles go through, begin to kind of make sense a little bit more. And so tonight is going to be the last of that, the intertestamental period, and next week, we're going to be, be getting into the New Testament. We're going to start with the incarnation, uh, the birth of Jesus. And so we're not totally leaving Herod behind, but I, I do want to give us a little bit fuller picture of Herod, of King Herod, before we get into the New Testament, just so that you can get a, a full appreciation for the kind of swell guy he was. Um, so last week, what we saw, I say that tongue-in-cheek, obviously. Last week... Uh, we saw that the process where the Maccabees actually gained control over the region, or some, something of control over the region, from the Greeks was in conjunction with the Romans. So they got a little bit of help from the Roman uh, Empire to push out the Greeks and kind of bolster their defense. So at some point, the Jews kind of got sick of being ruled, and they have been sick of being ruled for these hundreds of years now. And largely, it's been by various forms of the Greek Empire that have been kind of over the top of them. Well, they eventually pushed back, gained some control, and they sought Rome's help to do that. But as we saw last week, when you kind of grab the scorpion to help defend you against the snake, at some point, the scorpion's going to turn on you because... That's what scorpions do, and that's exactly what Rome does. So in 63 BC, the Roman Empire uh, seeks to kind of put a dispute to rest. There is a dispute in the land over two would-be rulers of the Hasmonean dynasty. The Hasmoneans, remember, are Jews. Uh, that is the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, same group of people, okay? They're vying for control. Two basically great-great-great-grandsons are vying for control over the, over the region, and specifically in Jerusalem. And Rome goes in to kind of settle the, agreement, the disagreement, and when they get there, they look kind of at both parties and go, we don't really like either one of you, and so they just sort of conquer both of them and take over. And so in 63 BC, thanks to Pompey and his, uh, really his lieutenant and their soldiers, they siege Jerusalem and take control for Rome. And Rome really doesn't let up control. So throughout the rest of the New Testament, Rome is going to have control. So 63 BC, all the way through um, for several hundred years after that, Rome is going to have control. And especially all the time in history that we're concerned about through the New Testament, Rome has control. 
And at the first, and, and really for a, a, the period up through Christ's birth, um, Rome sees Palestine or that, that area of Israel as kind of a client state. It's you know, beneficial for them. It's kind of beneficial to get them to Egypt and various other places and to have control over it. But they're really not looking to kind of add to their plate any more responsibilities at this point. So really, all Rome wants to do is put a puppet there in play that will kind of keep the region under control, but really not ask for much more. They just want somebody there to kind of exercise Rome's will, and that's about it. It's, it won't be until after a little bit after Herod's death that they start actually collecting taxes, which is when we're going to see the rise of the tax collectors and things like that. Um, so the point being, they uh, found a, a particular guy in Antipater uh, who is the father of Herod the Great, or King Herod, the Herod that we see at Jesus' birth. Antipater is the, the person they put in control. He gets poisoned and is killed, and his son Herod takes over the throne. And we saw that when Herod becomes king in Israel, he is named king of the Jews, by the Roman Senate. They put him specifically in that area, give him the title king of the Jews, and Herod is seen as an outsider. Do you remember why? This is kind of important, so I just want to know. You remember why? Was that? He's an Edomite, or in that day you, might, you would call them an Idumean. Herod was an Idumean, which means he was an Edomite, which means he was a great, great, many times over grandchild of who Esau so if we're tracing our lineage all the way back through the Old Testament we're seeing all the way back with Isaac and Rebecca Rebecca is pregnant with two sons and they're at war with each other inside the womb instead of kicking their mom they're kicking each other all right fighting all the way inside the womb and she's going, what is going on? No sonograms back then. Don't know that there's two of them in there. And she's told there's two nations that are at war inside your womb. And what is she told? The war with each other. And what? The older will serve the younger. The older is which one? Esau. That would make Jacob the younger. Jacob is later named Israel. That's where Israel gets its name. So uh, Esau and, and Jacob, Israel, are fighting with each other, and they say, and the, the, it's prophesied to Rebekah, the older Esau will serve the younger. Well, now we get to the period right before Jesus comes into uh, the world, and the king on the throne, when Jesus is born, is a child of Esau. And the king that is born, the one born king of the Jews is a child of Jacob. So we've got Jacob and Esau all over again, right here coming into bear in the, in the incarnation. So he's seen as an outsider because he's a child of Esau, and so that's one thing. They're kind of uh, pushing back against him. But he curries a little favor with Israel. How does he do that? Do you remember? A building campaign. Not only a building campaign, he doesn't stop building. He builds and he builds and he builds. And we looked at many of the palaces that he built throughout Israel and many of the kingdoms and all kinds of different things that he built. But the 
Most impressive of all was obviously the temple. The temple that he builds is massive. It kind of, it, 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 it for sure solidifies what we call Second Temple Jerusalem, or Second Temple Israel. It is, the first temple would be Solomon's temple, and by comparison to Herod's temple, Solomon's temple is tiny, all right? Herod's temple is massive, and it's Second Temple Jerusalem. Now, when that's torn down, this is, many Jews are looking at now a third temple, right, is, that's, I mean, that they want to build. But the point is, this is kind of Second Temple Jerusalem that we're looking at with this Second Temple that's been built. So he curries a little bit of favor with the Jews because of all the pretty things that he kind of spruces the land up with. And people like pretty things. And so they kind of, kind of do this to a lot of his faux pas, let's say it that way. But... That doesn't give us an entire picture of Herod. I want you to really get a good idea of who this guy was. Because when we get into the New Testament and you read the birth narrative of Christ, you see one particularly famous thing that Herod is known for, which is, remember what is it that Herod does right there when Jesus is born? He sends some people to kill some babies, right? And when we get to the end of this tonight... That will make a lot of sense, all right, to you. At least in terms of the kind of char character and person that we're looking at here in Herod. So during Herod's days as Tetrarch, Tetrarch just means he is in control of a small, smaller province. And this would be when his dad, Antipater, was on the throne. Um, during his days as Tetrarch, under the governance of his father, Antipater, the Hasmonean dynasty, remember that's the Jews, under King Hyrcanus, had considerably more power than later after Antipater's death. So it, what we're looking at right now, just to kind of get a, a little bit of a picture of what's happening, remember Rome is in control after 63 BC. So they, they are in control, but the land of Israel is a client state. So they're not exercising all the control they possibly could. So the leadership in that area is kind of a little bit of a negotiation. And as far as Rome is concerned, as long as there are no uprisings, they aren't concerned at all with the land. This actually is the same as it is after they take control after Jesus is born. The Roman government sort of left people alone to a degree when they have control of the region. As long as nobody's throwing stones at our soldiers, we're okay. Like as long as everybody's... So that there was a little bit of religious freedom, a little bit of tolerance, things like that in the land, as long as, you know, everything was under, uh, uh, kept, you know, pretty secure. So under Antipater and, and all that, the Hasmoneans were allowed to kind of rule the land a little bit. As long as nothing was trying, nobody was trying to overthrow Rome or push them out, everything was okay. So... Hyrcanus, who is the head of the Hasmonean dynasty, this is the Maccabees, right? These are Jews. He's seen as a king in the land, and um, he had a little bit of freedom. Now, during this time, remember, Herod has not taken over yet. He hasn't officially become king yet. This is before then. In 47 BC, Herod is a tetrarch in Galilee. So he's kind of a governor, if you will, in Galilee. And there is a zealot by the name of Hezekiah who is 
starting to throw stones at the soldiers. They're starting to lead a group of people to go on raids against Rome. Uh, he's a zealot, so we saw that a few weeks ago. What is a zealot? A zealot is someone who is trying to kind of overthrow the governing power. So they're trying to push back against Rome. Well, this sort of meets the level of an uprising in the land, and so Herod's going to do something about it. And so Herod, being over Galilee, gets some of his soldiers, of the Roman soldiers together, the people that he has control over, and um, they go against uh, the Hezekiah and some of his men, capture him, and behead him. And many of his men, he executes. Doesn't give them a trial or anything. So this is a problem for Hyrcanus because he is the king of the Jews formally, right? The, the Jewish people recognize Hyrcanus from the Hasmonean dynasty as the king over the area. They don't recognize Rome. So the fact that Herod, this kind of rogue governor out here in Galilee, captured this guy and without a trial executed him and put him to death and didn't turn him over to the Jewish authorities and say, y'all better do something or we will, that was seen as a big problem. And it was an offense to all the Jews. Not saying that Hezekiah didn't deserve some sort of punishment. They just wanted them to be the one to deliver it. So Herod is seen as having broken Jewish law to bring justice in some sort of way or to really uh, maybe uh, execute some sort of undue justice. So Herod was then turned over to the Jewish Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin, which is basically a, a court of Jewish officials, okay, think of something like the Supreme Court, but with a lot more justices, all right? They're seen as being kind of the chief uh, judges in the land. Big court cases go to them. They're the ones that decide the outcome of this event. Mostly, that's going to be in Jerusalem. It's all going to be in the capital city, right? Now, we haven't really gotten to the Sanhedrin yet. Okay, we'll get to them in the New Testament of how they're made up and, you know, how they work and all that kind of stuff. But for now, there is a Sanhedrin. It's a Jewish court. And Herod is turned over to the Sanhedrin by many of the Jews. Uh, Hyrcanus is seen as kind of like the chief justice, if you will, because he's the king, so he's kind of the chief on that court of the Sanhedrin, and uh, he has a problem, because he and Herod are kind of friends, or at least, let's put it this way, Hyrcanus can't exist without Antipater and Herod and, you know, that whole family being in agreement with him existing. So you see this tough spot that he's in? He's kind of like, okay, what do I do? Here's the Jews on this side who see me as king, and here's Herod on this side. He's caught between a rock and a hard place, and he doesn't really want to do what's right. He's got he's to figure this one out. So they turn Herod over to the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's summoned to the Sanhedrin, and they really, many of the Sanhedrin, but, but a lot of the Jews that are turning him over, want Herod to be put to death for, for what he's done. All right. So he shows up to the Sanhedrin with a legion of guards around him with weapons. They're armed to the hilt. And they walk into the Sanhedrin and 
He's, this is where the trial is supposed to happen, right? The Sanhedrin is supposed to stand up, and somebody on the Sanhedrin is supposed to say, this is what he did, here's the case against him, here's, you know, read, read him the, the riot act, or read him the law, whatever it is, you know. And instead, he walks in, and everybody sees the guards, and they're just silent. Nobody says a word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did we say come here? When? I, I don't remember. Did we, did we have a court case today? I didn't, is that on the docket, Aaron? Uh, so they kind of are sort of backing down a little bit. One guy stands up and says, you bunch of cowards, basically. Calls them all out. This is what he did. You know what he did. And all of you are sitting there like you, like you don't know because you see all these guards around. He literally tells them, now all of you are afraid that if we do what's right, he's going to turn these guards loose on us and we're going to be the ones that face the death penalty. So there's one guy out of the entire Sanhedrin that has any courage whatsoever. All right. So eventually... Hyrcanus goes, you know what, let's, uh, let's put this off a couple days. And he ends up telling Herod, look, here's how this is going to work. Herod ends up getting off scot-free. Nothing happens to him. Okay? But, Herod put this in the back of his mind. The Sanhedrin is not my friend, he says. So Herod, later, after his dad dies, Herod takes the throne... And when Herod received the kingdom from Rome, he killed all the members of the Sanhedrin, including Hyrcanus. The only one he left alive was the guy that stood up. The only one he left alive. And he said the reason he left him alive was because he respected him. How do you like that? <laughs> Isn't that the craziest thing you've ever heard? This guy's a nut job. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> he is weird, but he left him alive. He did not kill him. He was the only one out of the Sanhedrin. 45 members of the Sanhedrin at the time that he ended up kill, killing, including Hyrcanus. So killed them all. And, um, and so, needless to say, after that, the Sanhedrin became kind of a rubber stamp for Herod. Whatever, whatever Herod wanted, we'll do, because otherwise you're going to kill us. So he left them as a body, but, and they, were, they obviously had a lot less respect when Herod was alive due to their cowardice, I guess you would say. So when he uh, began his formal reign, which is in 37 BC, that's when the Roman Senate conferred on him the title King of the Jews, uh, in 37 B.C., he reigned all the way until 4 B.C. We'll talk more about that next week. Um, the policy of Hellenization went on as it had before. And you remember, Hellenization is that process whereby a culture becomes progressively more like the Greeks. That is Hellenization. Uh, some of that has to do with language. A lot of people began to speak Greek and things like that. Uh, Herod had a policy of Hellenization. He was pushing Hellenization. Greek culture, Greek language, which, is the, which was kind of the language, the currency of the day, as it were, is still Greek even in this time. He is pushing that as, he was, as, he, as it had been before. And you remember that 
when that was the case before, Jews didn't like that, right? But this might be the first time that we've had somebody on the throne in Palestine pushing Hellenization that was as strong as Herod. Prior to this, it's been hit or miss. There's been some fights between the Hasmoneans and the Greeks and things like that. But when Herod gets on the throne in the land of Israel, the ballgame changes a little bit. And, and it changes for several reasons. One is because the whole time he's currying favor with the Jews on this side. So the Jews may not like his pushing Hellenization, but they're not saying no to the temple being rebuilt. They're not saying no to the various buildings that he's erecting and, and the, you know, Jerusalem being spruced up the way it is and, and looking nice. And he does provide us with a lot of really sweet stuff. On the other hand, he drowns a bunch of, you know, Jews in swimming pools. So there's that, you know. Uh, I mean, you, you take the good with the bad, I guess, right? I mean, so that's kind of how he's, he's sort of seen. And so his push for Hellenization isn't really met with the same kind of resistance that it was earlier with other rulers because of how strong he is. Now, on Herod's part, not only is he pushing Hellenization, but like I said, he's trying to appease a lot of the people that, that he's ruler over. It's not like he's, um, you, don't, you don't have the idea of him as like a, uh, this kind of tyrant in that sense, where he's like, where everybody is terrified of him. That's not exactly how it is. It's sort of like uh, somebody that's bipolar. It's like, if you do what he's asking, or what he says, and you kind of follow his wishes, and you don't question it, you're probably going to love him. But if you push back against him, you'll end up face down in a swimming pool. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, that's kind of how it is, right? It's just, it's very cutthroat. So he goes about trying to appease all of his constituents. And the way he does that, in one part at least, is through marriage. So he was trying to become, become everything to all men, to the Jews, a Jew, to the pagans, a pagan. He, ha he married uh, a lady by the name of Miriamna. Miriamna, I, I think is how you pronounce it. She didn't tell me. Um, and actually, he married two women by the same name. So uh, it was two, his second and third wife are both named. So they, they just, in history, they go Mariamna 1 and Mariamna 2. Um, there you go. She was the granddaughter of Hyrcanus. Yeah. I, I think, you know, have you ever been voluntold? You, you ever been voluntold, you know? You're not, you're kind of like, hey, you're volunteering for this. And you're like, oh, oh, okay, I am. You know that, I think that was kind of how her marriage was. <laughs> Maybe something to that effect. But anyway... Um, he had, uh, it, it's kind of evident that through the people that he married, the ladies that he married, what crowds he was trying to uh, appease. And, and in some sense, marriage, especially to a king back in this day especially, would have been something a little bit more like how a presidential candidate picks a vice president. You know, what state am I weak in? What crowd am I weak with? I'm going to go get that vice president because they're going to help me with that constituency. And, and that's a little bit how it is here with marriage, at least in, in accordance with him. Not only that, but there was also a, an appeal to some extent that he had 
that he respected some of the Jewish dietary laws. In fact, out of deference to the Jewish dietary laws, he would not kill his hogs. Now, he would raise them. <laughs> he had them, but he didn't kill them. And he didn't eat his own hogs. And I don't know if he ever ate bacon at all, but he, he did raise them. Um, now, he was ruthless, however, with even his own family. He murdered several of his own wives, including Mariamna, who we just mentioned. He killed her because she allegedly committed adultery, or at least that's what he accused her of, committing adultery. Who knows what it really was? Pushing back against him in any kind of way would have probably been enough to get her killed. Um, and not only that, when he got to the end of his rule, he ordered his own sons to be executed. So there you go. Now, what he said was that the, his sons had tried to get control of his throne, and so he wanted them to be killed. That's not the worst thing that he'll do, trust me. He does some other really terrible things. But, uh, but that, that's you know one of them. So uh, they were accused of conspiracy to, to take over his throne, and so he wanted them, he wanted them killed, his own sons. Uh, whether he actually had reason or not, or maybe he was just paranoid, we don't know. There is really good evidence to suggest that as he got really close to the end of his life, he just got super paranoid. Probably senility took, it, took over at some point. Who knows? Dementia, whatever was going on. But he got really crazy there at the end, which is part of the babies in Bethlehem. Um, the building of the temple, beginning in 20 B.C., was another example of his desire to be honored among the Jews. But even that... Herod is still seen as someone to keep at arm's length. Even with the temple, the Jews didn't fully accept him. Uh, you know, uh, were appeased by him to some extent? Sure. Did it curry them, him some favor? Sure. But was he ever really fully accepted? No. He'd be one of those, you know, behind his back, they'd gossip about him kind of person. Um, now, during this kind of sweet spot of really two decades, from about 31 B.C. all the way to 11 B.C., Herod's reign over Judea was pretty successful. He was able, th uh, though ruthless, uh, he, was a, he was an able administrator. He gave Rome no reason to regret their appointment of him as king of the Jews. He was uh, constantly appeasing Rome. So everything that the Jews were essentially doing to Herod Herod was essentially doing to Rome. You know, everybody's serving somebody. But he was basically appeasing Rome as best he could. And as long as they saw him as a fit and able ruler, he was on the throne. And that was all they really cared about, just no uprisings. And he certainly kept that under his thumb. So he was seen as relatively successful. He uh, consistently upheld the interests of Rome. And he found no contradiction between Rome's interests and those of his kingdom and his subjects. So he never bucked up against Rome at all. He always uh, did exactly what they wanted. This was before the time they start collecting taxes, but he is routinely sending gifts up to Rome and especially to Octavian. Uh, Octavian is the formal name of Caesar, uh, the, I guess the less formal name of Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus will be the one who's on the throne for a large portion of um, at least Jesus' time in ministry. Um, Octavian is his family name, his kind of birth name, as it were. 
Caesar Augustus is the name he takes on, kind of like the Pope. You know, they take on a new name whenever they become whatever they are. Um, so uh, he is appeasing Augustus. He is sending off gifts and things like that. But it's not directly out of taxes. It's more just out of the coffers of the, of the nation. Um, now, in the Hasmonean dynasty, here's where he, he runs into a bit of trouble. And this is one of the reasons why the Jews uh, hated him as much as they did was because in the Hasmonean dynasty, up until this point, the high priest and the king were one. That's different than the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, two offices, king and high priest. By the time of the Hasmoneans, king and high priest eventually becomes one office. Well, Herod is an Idumean. And so, as a child of Esau, he can't really be high priest without creating one of those uprisings we're talking about. So, he basically makes it his policy as much as possible to degrade that office. Everybody's so afraid of him that he can basically do whatever he wants to the high priest. So, he degrades the office so much and people are so afraid of him that he basically made it his policy for the entire time that he's there that the high priest has to always check with him to make sure he's still the high priest. So instead of the, high, the, the priesthood and the high priest's role being a lifelong tenure of the office, the high priest is now appointed by Herod to be high priest. So what does that mean? Well... If you want to be high priest, you got to kiss the ring, right? It's, a, it's an interesting thing, as we've seen over the last many weeks, the role that power actually has in the lives of the people that we're reading about and we're seeing in the land. It seems that everything sort of revolves around power. Getting power, staying in power, with power typically comes money. The two are very closely related, and they seem to be the hardest things to actually relinquish. When you have notoriety, when you have power, when you have authority, when you have money, it changes you. And we've seen that time and time and time again, even some of the more righteous people that seem to take over control. We've seen it with David in Samuel, as we've seen that on uh, Sunday, that even with David, when you look at Solomon, who comes after him, Solomon's praying to the Lord for wisdom. The Lord grants him wisdom, and what does he do with it? Marries umpteen thousand women, and his heart goes off into idolatry. And so much of it is tied to power and money. And we see that time and again, uh, people will do what it takes to get power, to get money, and will do whatever it takes to keep it. Yeah. So, questions so far? Everybody tracking? Go ahead, Timothy. <laughs> yeah, nothing new under the sun is kind of the, the I think, the way it goes. It's uh, what, what we see in you know, politics and things like that. I mean, so much of what we read, when we actually get down to the meaning of the text, you see it's like, it might as well be the newspaper. You know, I mean, in terms of, it's, it's not like man has changed at all in any way. We, we kind of 
seem to be, that sinful nature seems to permeate all of us. So, um, so here's where it gets really strange. This is where the story in Bethlehem begins to make a little bit of sense. As Herod got older, he started to think about his death. And he started to realize, when I die, nobody's going to cry. Isn't that the strangest thing to, to think? You're a ruthless leader. You've drowned a bunch of the Sanhedrin in a swimming pool. You've seemed to be careless about even your wives, kill a lot of them. And you get down to the end of your life and you realize, huh, you know, I don't know if anybody's going to show up at my funeral. Okay, well, how do, we, how do we change that? Well, if I die, I want there to be an outpouring across the country. I want people to put on black, and I want them to cry, and I want them to mourn, and I want them to have, you know, Herod Day, and all this kind of stuff, and memorialize it on their calendar, and all this kind of stuff. So, he gave orders that all the distinguished men, or many distinguished men in the land, should all be killed at the same time he dies, so that the people will mourn, and nobody will ask why. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? What did he say? What did you say? Yeah, yeah, ruin from the grave. I mean, it's the strangest thing. I mean, just for even a ruthless dictator like that to get to the end of his life and to think, you know, I'd really like some flowers in my casket, you know, <laughs> and to do whatever it takes to ensure that people are just wearing black, you know, and people are crying. And that when people drive by, they'll go, oh, the king died. You know, who's the most notable one that died today? Well, the king died today. So that's the reason everybody's crying and sad. He must have been such a great ruler. And before long, people just forget, you know, what the actual circumstances were. And they just, you know, what's recorded in history books. And everybody mourned, you know. Eventually, you just lose all the details of the history, right? Little did he know. <laughs> he, he didn't know who was actually being born king of the Jews. <laughs> and that this time in human history would be pretty significant. So... Uh, he orders this to take place. Now, mercifully, these executions were not carried out. You'll be happy to know. Uh, they realized, guys, ding dong, the witch is dead. <laughs> right? We don't have to do what he said. Uh, you know. And so they didn't carry out the executions. He died in, his for, in one of the fortresses that he built at Herodium. He died in 4 B.C. He died in great, what was reported as by Josephus, great physical agony. And you know Josephus wrote that with great pleasure. <laughs> it's saying that he died in great physical agony. And recordedly by Josephus with no love from family or nation. Yeah. So, but the point is, as Herod's getting closer to the end of his life, it's only then that he begins to think in light of eternity. Isn't that interesting? Mortality has this ability, always. Uh, this is why I normally say, you know, when it comes time for funerals or things like that, we're going to preach the gospel at funerals. We're going to remind the people that are there, this is the truth of Christ's birth, his death, his resurrection, and the reason why he came. 
Um, and, and usually, many, most, sermon, most funeral sermons that I preach, I open with a story that, uh, well, a, a phrase, I guess a saying, that Spurgeon once said, which was, the funeral bell often preaches a better sermon than you'll hear in most churches. Because at the point where people die is, and, and when you attend a funeral and you're looking at a casket, is the moment where you realize, I am mortal. I'm going to die like this person did. One day, I'm going to be the one in that casket, and I don't know when it's going to be. And even the most vile people in the world, like Herod the Great, who have everything, who have buildings named after them, who have more money than they have anything else, even they get to the end of their life and they start to realize, what happens next? So, you know, it, it's, I think it's a call even to us as Christians if you're ministering to people that are dying, which in some respects we all are, but especially the closer they get to the end of their life, don't be hesitant to remind them of the truth of the gospel. In the good news of Jesus Christ is the offer of eternal life, of resurrection from the dead. We as Christians believe that death is not the end, that there is something beyond the grave. And we think Jesus Christ was the one to preach that message and to offer us eternal life. And so we shouldn't be ashamed of that. We should be ready in season and out of season, in every respect, to give an account for the hope that is within us, especially to those that are dying. If we can't to them, maybe nobody else. So um, this is going to bring all of that part to a close we're going to open up next week with Herod, but someone who's been born king of the Jews, and kind of let's paint the circumstances around Christ's incarnation before we get into the stories of the gospel. So that's probably going to take us a few weeks to do, to kind of unpack some, some of those things, maybe. Um, but that's where we're headed. Any questions? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, in, in, in many cultures, too, they actually change the way they dress for an extended period of time. Days, even, where nothing but black. And, and, I, and that even used to be the case in this country and has been long since forgotten. But it, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I bet it is, yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. Good.
Uh, Greek. For the most part, there was a, the Greek language carried the day for hundreds of years. Um, Latin became, uh, uh, was sometimes used in some things, but, but Greek was, a, was the prominent language at the time. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, um, my Roman and Greek knowledge is mostly restricted to this area, at least in history. Um, but um, the Greek language was spoken, uh, I believe, through 300 AD, something like that, through the end of the Roman Empire. So the, it was. Um, you know, it was still, the, the, the Hellenization was really, um, had a lot to do with the language that was being used. And the Greek language was, what carried the day. It was what the New Testament was written in. You know, I mean, that was the, the, the language of trade. I mean, I guess, in some sense, English kind of presents, represents something like that right now on the world stage. Is, you might have a, uh, a language in your country, but... English, if you want to do business around the world, English is probably the language you need to know. You know, similar kind of idea, I think. Um, Rome is going to come in and influence currency a lot, and it's going to change that a little bit. But even the Roman gods have parallels to the Greek gods. You know, they're virtually the same, you know, in terms of their, uh, they go by different names, but virtually the same. Yeah. Timothy. Mm. Yeah. 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 So it's, you know, the process of Hellenization is much more than just Greece proper, like we would know them. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a time to think through history and to see uh, your hand at work uh, in all of it, uh, influencing, moving, um, turning the hearts of men one way and the other, all setting up uh, the stage for Christ to enter. Uh, none of that is coincidental, we know. Uh, all of it is a product of your hand bringing these things about. None of these things are coincidence. So we understand that how you have shaped history in as much as we can, and we trust that you're doing the same thing in our life now that you did back then. And so we turn to you again as a reminder to trust in your plan for our lives, what you have brought about, uh, the good and the bad, all bringing us to this point of worship of your name. So we are grateful for that. And we pray only that we would have the faith to trust um, what step is next. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.